Good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 26 through 28. If you don't have a Bible, you've got a pew Bible in front of you, it should be on page 988. All right. <clears throat> I wonder, if you were an apostle, and you were wrapping up your letter to the church Thessalonica, how would you end it? How would you uh, sign off and what kind of commands would you leave them with? Maybe it would be something like super cheesy. Maybe you would say, y'all be good Christians now, XOXO Paul, right? Uh, hopefully it wouldn't be, wouldn't be that bad. Uh, but we don't have to wonder this morning, right? We can see exactly what it is that Paul wants to leave the Thessalonians with. And that's what we're going to look at today, verses 26 through 28. I'm going to read that for us now. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Each verse this morning forms our points. Point number one, give brotherly affection. Point number two, read scripture publicly. And point number three, remember the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, while I am weak, you are made strong. And I pray that the glory of your grace would shine through this morning. And I pray that you would work through the reading and the preaching of your word. That you would do good to your people. That you would bring glory to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one. Give brotherly affection. All right, so we've all been there, right? You go to shake someone's hand, and then they form a knuckle. <laughs> or as you see that, you change your hand into a knuckle, and then they change it into a handshake, and then it just kind of mushes into each other, and it's like really bad, right? You're like, that's super awkward. Or there's the other one where you come up to someone, and you're going to give them a hug, and you kind of go to the side, but then you both go to the same side. You know, and then you kind of both do it at the same side, and you're not going in at the right angle, and you just kind of crash into each other, and there's this weird dance, and it's just awkwarder, right? Well, in today's text, Paul commands the brothers, and by brothers here, he also means sisters. It just, it's just a shorthand for all the members of the church. He tells them to kiss one another, okay? Now, you're probably thinking, surely this is just a kiss on the cheek, right? Uh, well, sometimes it was, but other times it was not. Yes, it included a kiss on the mouth. That was a common greeting in that culture. It was something that would happen between people who were close to one another and especially to family members. And to kind of back this up, there's a lot of places we could go, but I just picked one place in the church fathers that I think made this very clear that indeed they were kissing one another on the mouth. Augustine says this in 400 AD, Christians embrace one another with the holy kiss. This is a sign of peace, as the lips indicate. Let peace be made in your conscience. That is, when your lips draw near to those of your brother, do not let your heart draw, withdraw from his. Awkwardist, <laughs> right? Now, this command appears five times in the New Testament. Four times with Paul, once with Peter. So it's clearly instructed. It's, it's, it's obvious. So... What does it mean? Does it mean that in order to be faithful 
obedient Christians, we need to greet one another with a kiss? I think the answer to that is no. The reason I think that is because evidence suggests that this was already happening in the culture. I've already mentioned that. This was commonplace. So it's not as if Paul was saying, I need to implement some sort of new Christian greeting that I want to continue through all the ages. Rather, what I think is more likely is Paul is giving instruction. He's taking just what so happened to be the common greeting at the time, and he's saying, I want you to do it in a particular manner. I want you to have a certain attitude whenever you do this greeting. That is, it is the Christian attitude of how we greet one another, not the form that Paul is concerned about. So I want us to notice two things. First, notice that this common greeting is referred to as a holy kiss. Paul wants us to take the cultural means of showing brotherhood and camaraderie, but he wants it to be done in such a way that it's holy. For us today, that would mean a fist bump or a hug or a handshake, but it would need to be done in a holy way. For the Thessalonians, it's a kiss. So the question is, what makes a kiss holy? Well, maybe we could ask, what makes a kiss unholy first to get at that? Think about Judas. Judas in the garden goes up to Jesus and he gives him a kiss. But that was a kiss of betrayal. Or think about the kiss between a husband and wife. A kiss is sensual. Paul does not want the Christians, brothers and sisters, to come together and kiss each other like that. He doesn't want it to be done in that manner. It shouldn't be manipulative or offensive or hypocritical like it was with Judas, and nor should, be, should it be sensu- sensual like it would be with spouses. The kisses between brothers should be pure. They should be holy. In the same way, our greetings should be pure and holy. Maybe uh, an example would help. What does it mean to, to give a holy greeting to someone? Uh, think about your, you're going in to hug somebody, a brother in the church, but in your heart, you're harboring something. You're, you're angry at them. You're upset. There's some sort of negative feeling. Well, Paul's saying, don't pretend that everything is fine. Like if that sort of thing is going on in the life of the body, that should be addressed like yesterday so that you can give each other a genuine, non-hypocritical hug. If there is a splinter in your heart, then you need to remove it so that you can be real with your brothers and your sisters. So whatever the form of greeting, that isn't the point. The point is, let it be holy. Let it be morally pure and let it be genuine. Second, notice that the holy kiss is between brothers. And I think that's the main point here. The main point is that we should harbor a familial love for one another. And then we should express that often to each other. Notice that he says brothers, and that's something that Paul has said in his letters over 120 times. He loves calling Christians brothers. So why does he use that term? Well, when you repented of your sins and you turned to Christ, you were adopted. You gained a family. God is your father now. And all the fellow believers around you, they are your brothers and your sisters. Listen to these words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. While Jesus was still speaking to the, to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But to the man who told him that, he replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand, 
towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So who are our brothers and sisters? Our brothers and sisters are those who have been adopted by God and they are those who do the will of God. That is, it's the Christians in this room. And so this text is teaching us that God wants us to love and cherish one another like a family. And he also wants us to do that in such a way that is out in the open. It reminds me of Jesus' words when he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So perhaps this command then to show some PDA, to show some uh, public display of affection towards your brothers and sisters, uh, maybe that's hard for you. you Maybe as I talk about this, uh, you're thinking about how families aren't affectionate and loving. Or at least the family I was raised in wasn't. Maybe you're saying. I just want to say, I get that. But I want your feelings about that to prove my point. And that is, I think instinctively, we all know that a family shouldn't be that way. A family should be a place that is warm and affectionate. And if our blood family should be that way, then how much more should our Christian family be that way? So hopefully that's convinced you this church family should be a place that is loving and warm. But then you're thinking, I'm just not that kind of person. I'm just just not affectionate. Or at least we all know that everyone here has various degrees in the way that they'll communicate their affection. Well, thankfully, uh, Paul has given us a way to work on that, a way to practice that, a way to show our love and affection. He says, give brotherly greetings. So just practically, I just want to say, simply try whatever your temperament is to push the limits on the way that you show affection to your church family. If when it comes to your greeting, all you can do is muster a smile and a fist bump, let it be the warmest smile and fist bump that you can muster. And that's good. And you're not doing that because you're fake or being ingenuine, but you're doing it because in your heart, you are appreciating and recognizing that God has given you a family, a place that is warm and full of love. And finally, on this point, I just want to praise God. Brothers and sisters here at Sixth Avenue, we have a warm church. And in the vein of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I just want to say, keep loving one another. You already love one another. Keep loving one another more and more. And let our genuine love express itself in all kinds of ways. But let another way be brought out from the text today. And that is, when you do a fist bump with Cody Smith, and when you shake hands with Spencer Miller, and when you give a hug to Miss Teresa, do it in such a way that is holy and full of warmth. That's point number one. Point number two. Paul wants us to read the scripture publicly. Read Scripture publicly. This will be our longest point, so buckle down. When Paul planted the church in Thessalonica, he was only able to stay for a very short period of time before pagans and Jews ran him out of town. The young Thessalonian church, as we've, as we've heard this morning and as we study the text, they're so dear to Paul. 
You know, he says he's like a mother and a father to them. But after he got kicked out of town, it was like the Thessalonian church was a newborn, helpless baby just sitting on a street corner. And Paul's mind is racing. What's going to happen to them now that I'm gone? Are they going to give in to persecution? Are smooth talkers going to come in and lead them astray from the gospel? Paul had to know what was happening. And so that's why he sent Timothy, his most trusted companion, to go find out. And thankfully, Timothy came back with a good report. And it filled, it filled Paul with relief and with joy. And so that's why he wrote this letter back to them, to encourage them, to let them know that he was so glad to hear that things were going well. And he just wants to keep pushing them. He tells them about how he plans to come and see them again. And he tells them about how uh, his character is reliable and how they can trust his word. And he, and he tells them how much he loves them. And he tells them all the things they can continue to do to pursue godliness in their lives. That's all well and good. That's all well and good. But the content of this letter does not matter if it is never read to the brothers of the church. And that's why we read, seemingly out of nowhere, here in verse 27, such strong language from Paul when he says, I put you, you being presumably one of the church elders, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I hope you feel the jarring effect. This is just such a gentle and loving and kind letter. And he's finishing things up. He's saying, greet one another with affection like brothers. And then he pauses and says, I am telling you before God, you better read this letter to all the brothers. The grace of Christ be with you. It's like, man, like, where did that come from? Well, let's look at it. We're going we're to dig into that and kind of pick that apart and see what's happening. I want to start by addressing what Paul means when he says, I put you under oath before the Lord. Now maybe, this is my first effect, I wonder if it is yours. Did you think, is Paul forcing the Thessalonians to do something sinful? Doesn't Jesus say you shouldn't take oaths? Let's read it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Nothing Uh, Anything more than this comes from evil. So there you have it, right? Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. But Paul says, I put you under an oath before the Lord. Well, no, it's it's not quite that simple. Jesus was forbidding an Old Testament practice of making these rash promises in the name of God in ways that are not honoring to God at all. Think of Jephthah and the promise that he made in the book of Judges, or the oath that he made. He says something to the effect of, God, if you help me win this battle, then whatever comes through that door of my house, I will offer up to you as a burnt offering. And then his daughter comes out, right? Jesus is pointing at that sort of thing and saying, no, I'm putting an end to that nonsense. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Stop making ridiculous oaths. But what about Paul? Well, the Greek word he uses here in verse 27 for one, is a different Greek word 
than Jesus uses. Paul uses the word horkizo, translated here as, I put you under an oath. To horkizo someone is just a way of, in a, a very strongly, strongly worded way of commanding something. So it's interesting, there's only two places in the Bible where the word horkizo is used, two other places. And they both actually have to do with demons. And I think they demonstrate that what Jesus meant by oaths and what Paul means by oaths are two different things. All right, so let's look at those. The two examples of horkizo in the Bible. The first example comes from Acts chapter 19, where some Jews who fancied themselves to be exorcists were going up to some demons, and they said this, We horkizo you by the name of Jesus. Now think about it. I'll push you under note. Here, the word could not mean that the Jews were commanding the demons to take an oath in the name of Jesus to do something. Right? It doesn't make sense. The idea that demons would do anything in the name of Jesus is nonsense. Rather, what is happening is these Jews are coming up to these demons and they're commanding them in very strong language. The ESV actually translates it differently. It says, we implore you by the name of Jesus to come out of him. The second instance occurs in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, where the demon in Gerasenes actually horkizos Jesus himself, right? We read, and crying out with a loud voice, the demon said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I horkizo you by God. Do not torment me. Now, clearly, the demon is not saying to Jesus, Jesus, you need to take an oath before God that you will not torment me. Because he has no authority to do such a thing to Jesus. Rather, the idea that is being communicated is this demon is trying to use strong language to say, please, he's, he's pleading, he's begging, Jesus, do not torment me. So, let's put all that together. While it's a perfectly good translation to say that Paul is, is putting them under an oath, Paul doesn't use the word oath in the same way that Jesus uses the word oath. He is not making the Thessalonians sin. Okay? Rather, and this is the main point, if you don't hear anything else I just said about that, because I know it's kind of technical, it's this. Paul is using some of the strongest, strongest language available to him to plead, or to even better, to solemnly command the Thessalonians. He is coming right up to the line and saying as strongly as he can, I implore you, in the presence of God himself, read this letter to all the, bro- to all the brothers. Now, the question is then, uh, Paul, why are you using such strong language? You've already pointed out just how strange it seems that he throws this in the middle of such a, uh, a kind letter. Well, it has everything to do with how Paul views his own writings. Paul is an apostle, right? He's sent by God to deliver his sacred message to the people. And Paul understands that his writings are exactly that. He isn't shy about this fact. Right, let's look at a, a place here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Catch this. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. The things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If Paul writes it, Paul understands that it's the same thing as if Jesus himself said it. That's how he sees his word, his, his letters. Another place that just kind of corroborates this, this is Peter saying this about Paul. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. 
There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unable, or sorry, unstable, twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter likewise sees that these letters that were being passed around from Paul, they are scripture. So then, Paul is zealous for the contents of his letters because he is zealous for the scriptures. Said another way, because Paul has a reverence for the word of God, Paul has a reverence for his own writings. So in light of that, you can see then why Paul is so eager to make sure that his letter is read to all of the brothers. This isn't just a cute letter between between pen pals. This isn't like junk mail that just showed up that you can use for kindling, right? This is the very word of God. And so he wants them to read it. Some historical context is also helpful here. Brothers and sisters, we should be supremely thankful that we have constant access to the word of God. Whether you are low, whether you are high, or whether you need uh, counsel, wherever you are, you can reach for your Bible and you can open it and you can read it. You probably have multiple copies sitting at home. You have black few Bibles right in front of you. You can download a free app. You can pull it up anywhere you are at any time. Be grateful for that. That's a gift. And it hasn't always been the case. Right? In ancient times, it wasn't like that at all. Paul can just shoot an, an email to each member of the church and, and make sure that they got it. And then books and letters that had to be copied by hand, so they were really expensive and it was, it was widely unavailable to the people. So if you were a member of the church of Thessalonica, how were you going to hear the scripture that, that Paul was pinning? Well, you had to go to church on a Sunday morning and someone in the leadership would stand up and they would read Paul's letter to you. They would read it aloud. This practice of reading the scriptures publicly, it had already been going on for centuries in the synagogues, the places where the Jews would gather for worship whenever they gathered outside the temple. You can see that in a place in Acts chapter 13 very clearly, but I especially want to look at Acts chapter 15, which says this, verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. When it talks about proclaiming Moses, it means proclaiming the books that Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible. He's being proclaimed in every city, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So when the temple was destroyed and the Jews were taken away in exile, they would regularly come together just to listen to someone read the Old Testament. That's that's the way that they would hear and receive the word of God. And so naturally, what would also happen is when uh, Christians came on the scene and they started, uh, uh, Gentiles and Jews began believing in Christ and coming together, well, the synagogue worship began to kind of Christianize. And one of the ways that it Christianized is that people, instead of just listening to the Old Testament scriptures being read, they would also hear Paul's letters being read. Are you seeing the parallel? Just as a man would stand up and say, here's the word of God written to us from Moses, so also someone would say, here's the word of God penned by the hand of Paul. They were reading them during the corporate worship. I don't think that parallel is an accident. And another thing that Paul was also conscious of, uh, this wasn't a one-off thing. We also read this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, among you, 
right? That is during corporate worship. Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Right? So whenever you come together, read this letter among the people. Just like you do when you gather together for worship and you read the Bible, I want you to read this too. And then I want you to pass that letter off to the Laodiceans so they can go read it in the church during corporate worship when the body comes together. And then I want you to take their letter and I want you to read it in the corporate gathering. He's putting his letters right there in the same category as the Old Testament scriptures because Paul knows he is uh, delivering the word of God. So in light of all that, it all makes sense. Why does Paul use such strong language? Because Paul wants the Thessalonians to hear the word of God. Scripture should be read aloud during the corporate worship to all the believers of Thessalonica. So what do we do with this then? Okay, I've laid the groundwork. What are some practical applications that we pull out of verse 27? Well, I have two for you. The first one is pretty obvious. We're right there on it. We must read Scripture during corporate worship. We've already looked at several places where Paul's doing that. I just want to look at one more spot where Paul says it, and it just really drives the nail home. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Paul tells Timothy, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Timothy was a young pastor. Paul set him up over the church of Ephesus. And what does he tell him to do here? We, we know the, the last two things. He needs, to, he needs to encourage and exhort the members and kind of tell them what they need to do to follow the Lord. And then he also needs to teach them and give them instruction. That's what pastors do. But look at the thing that leads this list. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's not a throwaway. That's a part of our liturgy because it's a critical part of corporate worship. And when I say liturgy, I just mean what we do in a Sunday morning. There's a reason we do that. It's important to Paul. It's in the Bible. It's important to us. Okay, that leads me to the next point of application, which I really want to sit on for a moment. Point number two, listen to Scripture readings expectantly. Think about the nature and the characteristic characteristics of God's Word. God created the universe through His Word. He is upholding the universe by the Word of His power right now. His Word is a fire that burns away dross. The Bible says it's like a hammer that breaks stony hearts. It's rain that waters crops. It's milk that nourishes babies. It's food that fills the hungry. It's a sword that pierces the heart. And it's a sword that does battle against the devil. It's like gold that enriches us. It's like honey that is sweet to our lips. It's a mirror that reveals our true selves. It's a lamp that illumines our paths. It transforms us into the very image of Jesus Christ himself. We could go on and on and on about just the majesty and the incredibleness of God's word. With that in mind then, imagine what it would be like to have lost God's word, to not have access to it. How would that affect us? We would starve. We would be in the dark. This did happen in, in the history of God's people. And I want to look there to show a place where the people were starved for God's word And then you see this moment where God's word returns and they are filled 
with God's word. And the impact is astonishing. So let's look at that. Nehemiah chapter 8. Some context here is, is, is important. The Babylonians had come and they had destroyed Israel. I mean, Israel was just, it was rubble. And the people were hauled off into slavery. They were taken away from their homes. And now they're, they're foreigners in the land of pagans. They don't have a temple to worship anymore. They don't have a king to protect them and to lead them. Centuries of groping around in the dark without the light of God's word had finally led them to rock bottom because they had long forgotten God. They had long stopped listening to his word and obeying the festivals and obeying the law. And here they were. At this point, they had been gone from Israel for, for decades. But then God, in his kindness, allows them to go back to Jerusalem. He allows them to go back to the holy city where the king would sit on his throne and where the temple would be rebuilt. And they're all excited and they go. <laughs> and for generations and upon generations, they had forgotten their God. But here they were in the city. And everything around them is, is rubble. And in their own hearts, like, they're like a pile of rubble themselves. They're just standing there and they're, they're looking at the glory of God's city. Only a remnant of them held on to that word. Only a few of them still trusted and believed God and cared about what he said. And as they're huddled together, something powerful happens. And that's Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra reads scripture to the people. I want you to notice their response. I'm starting at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, they all were gathered together. And Ezra read from it, facing the square before the water gate, and he read it from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe, he stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this very purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, some of the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense of it so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away, went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So why is this so powerful? They were, they were gone. Everything was, it was over for the people of God. But when the word of God was read, he gave them understanding. And their weeping turned to rejoicing. And you notice that they're in, they're in a destroyed city and they're having a feast. And everyone's invited. The word has been spoken to us again. We are hearing from the word of God again. I just want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that what the Lord did for the Jews that day, he can do for us. Maybe sometimes you find yourself cold toward the scriptures. You feel like you can't understand it. Well, I just want to encourage you. The word of God is maybe more accessible than you think. Did you notice that Nehemiah was reading it to everyone who could understand words? If they had ears and they could hear, sit them up. If they're five years old and they can be in there, put them in there. We're going to read to them. Because it can do something. The word is active. And did you notice that Paul urges the letter to be read to all the brothers? Not just to select few. It's not just for those who have a seminary degree, right? It's not just for those among us who are super intellectual. No, you can believe the gospel. You can hear the word of God and you can trust him. You can learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You can receive the word of God and you can learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. The essential truths of the Bible are clear and they are available to you. And on top of all of that, you may be surprised just how accessible the more difficult parts of the scripture really are. If you would take the time to read and to study to listen to the scriptures. That being said, there are things that are difficult in the Bible. That's why the Lord gives the church preachers and teachers. But don't let good teaching quench your desire for reading and listening to the Bible, right? That would be like only listening to interviews and commentary on your favorite movie instead of actually taking the time to sit down and watch it and enjoy it for yourself. The scripture that we read on a Sunday morning, it's for your edification. It's for your good. And it's very often connected to the sermon that we're going to have. So don't just wait for the preacher to get up there and spoon feed something to you when the word of God is right there being read to you and it's accessible and God is saying something to you in that moment. So just to get practical, uh, what do you do when the scripture is being read aloud on a Sunday morning? Do you get super distracted? I think it happens to all of us, right? It's, it's, we live in a culture, we live in a video culture, we live in a, in a five-second or six-second vine culture. It's hard to sit down and listen to something for 30 seconds, let alone several minutes like Allison just did for us. Well, here's maybe some simple things that could help. Use your quiet time in the morning, especially on a Sunday, to just clear your head for what's coming, just to kind of put everything out of your mind and be prepared to hear the word of God that morning. And if you don't do that in your quiet time on a Sunday morning, well, usually we make a space for that uh, during the announcements. We have a moment of silence. Well, what do you do during your moment of silence? Do you check Facebook real fast? 
Right? Do you see if you got any emails? You're looking at a text? It's probably not helpful. Take that time to close your eyes, clear your mind, and be ready to listen to what God has to say to you this morning. And on the note of phones, right? Silence your phones. <laughs> I, it's tempting to me. I did the same thing. Turn your phone off. It's, it's just a way to have undivided attention in a culture that is constantly trying to take our attention away. Another thing you can do, consider opening up your Bible to follow along. Right? You get a worship guide. Take that worship guide. Sit down. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. Open to the text we'll be reading that morning and be ready to follow along. Whenever you're applying more than just your ears, you're also applying your eyes to something, it makes it that much easier to stay focused and to see what God is trying to say. These small things, they can help us prepare to listen more attentively to the scriptures. Okay. Another thing to add, on top of all this, while Sixth Avenue aims for everything that we say on a Sunday morning to be good and true, we also need to realize that no man is perfect. The only infallible voice you will hear on a Sunday morning, the only infallible voice, is the voice of the person who is reading the scriptures. It's being served up to you on a plate. Do you treat it that way? This is the infallible word being spoken to me right now. Are you tuning in? Do you push pause in your thoughts? Do you stand that attention in your hearts like the people in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, who stood at the scripture reading. Do you lean in? Well, we should, because it's the most perfect thing that is going to be said on a Sunday morning. When the Bible is read to all the brothers and sisters in the room, make sure that you are listening expectantly. Point number three, remember the grace of Christ. This point's much shorter. <clears throat> Paul is so eager to remind the Thessalonians of the grace of God that he says it both at the front of the letter and he says it at the back of the letter, right? In fact, every single one of Paul's 13 epistles begin with some form of grace to you and end with some form of grace with you. Every single one of them. It's very interesting. Grace is like the binding that holds Paul's letters together. Without grace... All of his words would just be lost in the wind. So what do I mean by that? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor. Said another way, it's when God does good to those who don't deserve it. It's when God does good to those who don't deserve it. So when Paul writes these letters, he's, he's giving them grace. He knows that if God doesn't come alongside him and give him help, and if God doesn't give the hearers of that word help, then it will be of no effect. And he knows that whenever the letter is over, if God's grace doesn't continue with them, then it'll be to no effect. So I'm going to look at that just a little bit further. How uh, God's grace is given to them and how it stays with them. And why does Paul make that distinction? I think John Piper's take is really helpful here. I'm just going to read what he says. I think it's very convincing. Piper says, I think it means that at the beginning of Paul's letter, he realizes that they are about to hear his word the apostolic word, the authoritative word of God. So he says, in and through this hearing of the word of God, grace is coming to you. This letter is the channel of God's grace to you. On the other hand, as Paul comes to the end of his letters, he realizes that the listening church will soon not be reading anymore. 
they will be going out into a very hostile world. This parchment will be rolled up and treasured in someone's safe at home until the next reading. Is there more grace besides what comes to you as you hear the word of God? Paul answers 13 times, grace be with you. Yes, grace does not stay locked up in a scroll in the safe. It goes with you because Christ goes with you. Paul isn't with the Thessalonians anymore, but he knows that God is. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is that God's grace isn't just with the Thessalonians, but of course, his grace is with us too. And oh, how we need God's grace. We cannot do anything that Paul has written in this letter if God does not come alongside us to do us good. Without the grace of God, Paul's message of salvation would fall on deaf ears and no one would be saved. Without the grace of God, when tribulation and persecution comes, you and I will fall away and it will all be for naught. We cannot stand up in our own strength. Without the grace of God, deceivers and wolves and the tempter, he would come and he would be able to coax us away from the gospel that we believed in and our faith would be shipwrecked. We need the grace of God to keep our ship straight, to keep us afloat. Without the grace of God, all of the instructions that Paul gives them about godliness, we wouldn't be able to do it. We wouldn't be able to carry out what God has asked us to do. We are wholly dependent on God's grace. So isn't it encouraging then that we will not be ruined and that Paul tells us the grace of Jesus Christ be with you. He will be with you. Brothers and sisters, he is with you. So be encouraged. Be strengthened. Leave with the contents of 1 Thessalonians, stored up in your heart, knowing that your God goes with you to help you carry out everything that is commanded. Finally, maybe you aren't a Christian this morning and you haven't experienced the redemptive grace of God. That is, you don't know what it is to trust in Jesus and know that God has, has decided to do you good by not treating you according to your sins, but instead forgiving you. Well, first, I want to warn you. Do not take the patience of God for granted. You are experiencing a kind of grace grace from God right now. It's called common grace, and it gives it to everyone. He is giving you time. He is giving you a chance to turn away from your sin, to repent, and to turn to Jesus Christ and to trust him for salvation, to clean him and say, my good works are not enough, that I am not just, I am not good, I am not right before you, but that because of what Jesus Christ has done in my place, I can be made right. I can have right standing before you. All it takes is that. It's free. You can't earn grace. You can't work for it. You can't pay for it. Just trust in him and be saved. And with that, you will know what it is to have the grace of God with you today and for the rest of eternity. Would you do that? Would you trust him? If you have any questions about what that looks like, I just encourage you to reach out to any member here at 6th Avenue and talk with them about that. Brothers and sisters, this has been 
an awesome time through the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, I've loved it. And I pray that we are built up through it. And I pray that the Lord would show us more grace as we go from here and we work it out in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Let's pray. Father, you are full of grace. We thank you, Lord, for giving us a family where we can love one another. We thank you, Lord, for graciously giving us the word that you use it to transform us. And we just ask, Lord, that you would be with us, that we would know that fact and be comforted and encouraged by it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.